Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 26 of the Light Shed podcast. As you know, I'm Brandon Ross, along with Walter Pisick and the esteemed Richard S. Greenfield. Coming to you live from the Big Apple today, New York City, getting psyched for my eye doctor's appointment. This is this is about when Joe, if we were in the office, would be like, well, why don't you tell them to put some toothpicks under your eyes so that they stay open? I really miss our banter in the office, but it's good to see you guys once a week on this. You might have also noticed that Brandon's in New York City based on the um, lower voice quality of, of this audio recording. Um, ah, I haven't. I haven't. That's been. how you can really define where Brandon is for our podcast listeners is how Brandon would sound from week to week. I it's think funny. I, I, somehow I when think I go I back to New York good. City like I am today, I'm able to carry the mic with me because it doesn't weigh more than a, maybe a pound or two. Rich, it's really not that heavy. You work out. I don't. Uh, this is this is the true. problem. This I need to get into better shape so I could carry that giant ass podcast podcast mic with me everywhere I See, go. It's a two pound thing. It's like you know the jazzer size, what they would hold in jazzer size. All right, let's go to the first slide. Yeah, let's get to <laughs> okay. it. We have a funny. Um, oh, that first was a horrible today. picture, by the way. Oh, sorry, but we got to redo it is that what it picture. Is. But let let's let's play this video because this really sets the tone for today's podcast. Hello, and welcome back to Apple Park. I am so glad you could join us today. 5G, 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 <laughs> yes, yes, Rich and Brandon. Apple leaned heavily into 5G at their launch. Um, you think my and, mom knows what 5G is? Well, no, she probably doesn't. <laughs> okay, go um, on. <laughs> but what was also interesting is they had Hans Vesper, the CEO of Verizon, show up on stage. That's the first time they've had an operator on stage announcing something since the very initial uh, Stan Sigmund launch. That was obviously extremely different because... AT&T was the exclusive provider to Apple at the time. They didn't know what they were getting into. So um, you had Hans Vesberg on stage, not only launching his 5G network, which was unique to that carrier, um, but also like branding it. They have this ultra wideband branding that Verizon is using that is specifically unique to them, not only globally, <laughs> but also in the United States. So they're the only ones that are going to be using this UW logo that's going to show up on your phone. And what does that mean? It's using millimeter wave spectrum, which are podcast listeners. I knew it. It's coming back to millimeter wave. I I have this spectrum thing down. I knew it. But hold on, Walt. But hold on. I want to just stop you there. So is there a reason, like normally Apple puts somebody up on stage because they're going to be differentiated in terms of what they're doing. Like I remember when Richard Plepler was up there and they were early to sort of working with um, when HBO was doing something early with, with Apple, like, is there a significance to like what 5G in Verizon is going to be able to do versus what the other carriers 5G is going to look like with these phones? Um, for Verizon, yes, but if there's not differentiation in terms of Apple, in other words, anyone, those, that ultra wideband will be on other phones. Um, and again, it's not that unique. Other operators can use millimeter wave if they chose. The only ones that are using millimeter wave globally are United States providers. And, and as we've talked about many times before, Verizon's been, been the, uh, the biggest proponent of that. So the issue, though, is like, the, as we've talked about, millimeter wave has limited coverage, 200 feet. We did that big video in Chicago where I you know, used it and I turned around and that speeds dropped. It went behind a piece of glass, speeds dropped. They claim things have improved, whatever. So, but even on the broad, broader 5G networks, so they also launched this DSS technology, but they're only using a very small amount of spectrum. Same thing with T-Mobile. They're, they're putting 5G on a low band spectrum, but not using enough of it. So as a result, the speeds that people are getting when they see 5G on their phone might not be as different than what they're already experiencing on LTE. And I think we have um, a tweet about that. I brought that. it right up for you. Thank you. So you ask Gurman, and I respond. Right. So Mark Gurman from Bloomberg um, was showing how the speeds weren't different on 5G versus LTE on his T-Mobile phone. 
You had PC Magazine that did a similar um, type of study. Then you've had, you know, subsequent stories that that the Wall Street Journal, you know, going off on on CNBC well, talking for, about how for, for our listeners on the podcast, you want to just describe exactly what it shows on this slide because I think it's similar is speeds, which is fifty megabits of download speed and similar upload of of twenty. Um, and w- what was fascinating was on the Apple event itself, um, they actually have a, a, a um, functionality where if the 5G speed is not better than LTE, it will just revert to LTE and not burn your battery as they, as they claimed on the, on the past. So it kind of is reflective of the state um, of 5G today. So, you know, we'll see if that drives a super cycle as, as many people have at least tried to pitch. Um, there is a smaller phone, so that can help as well. The bigger news or interesting thing at this event was what happened immediately afterward, which is AT&T came out with this massive uh, $800 subsidy. Nope. You're, you're, you're jumping the gun, Rich. Okay. Jumping the gun on, on the, on, on the trigger finger there. We'll get to Mike Sievert soon enough. Okay. Um, so AT&T <laughs> offered $800 subsidy. That was a massive number in 2016 it was T-Mobile came out with 650 and then everyone replicated. Wow. And then the following year they were like, they go, okay, we're never going to do this again. Cause it didn't impact results. And then here they did it again. Like eight, uh, t came out and then the other guys replicated. Is that a cash flow issue? Walt? because you're always talking about them covering the dividend. Now they're <laughs> handing out massive subsidies in the middle of a super cycle. Is, that's why, that's is, is there I'm, any cash implications? I mean, that's, that's why, Brandon, everyone was so surprised that AT&T would throw this big subsidy in there because, you know, they did it for existing customers and people are always questioning or investors are questioning whether AT&T has enough free cash flow to cover the dividend. So to, to offer this much of a subsidy, it may not necessarily impact their EBITDA because the how the accounting works, but it does impact the free cash flow. So, you know, a lot of the questions are like, how do you get the money? And like, what can you sell? And things like that. And then there was more debate this week. I, I heard you think they're going to sell direct TV. I mean, again, podcast listeners, no. <laughs> and anyone that's read our 20 for 20, um, <laughs> some people put out some uh, information that they didn't think regulators um, would approve a transaction, whatever. You know, we've, we've been to DC many, many times. Um, so I don't, I don't know what to I think you. we I think we know that the New York Post is fake news. But, but you know what, Walt? The other thing that came at me this week from a couple of people, which I was shocked at, they were just like, Charlie never gets a deal done. That's why this has to go to a third party because Charlie just can't get a deal done. It seems like everyone so just seems to So were they unaware of what happened with Sprint T-Mobile where Charlie That's got a deal amazing. done to, with among three or four counterparties? And, and actually, those same people were probably also saying like, oh, Charlie's going to tank it at court. And they're going to lose the court case, and the exact opposite happened. So, the 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 thing is, and we talked about this like Charlie's last week, been so the one pushing for the deal 100%. the hardest. He's been socializing it on every fucking earnings call. I'm not going to be labor because we talked about it last week. Yeah. You have a fiduciary duty to call Charlie and try and get a deal done. If it doesn't work, great. But like, what's the harm uh, in in trying this? Okay. Then what happened, Rich? Now we let's queue up T-Mobile. I was, who was I was so excited, Walt. I was so excited. <laughs> so T-Mobile. So AT and T and don't hit play yet. T-Mobile, <laughs> AT and T and Verizon. Second video had these the had these special offers on the Apple website. T-Mobile was nowhere to be found. The messaging from the company was like basically completely flat-footed for a company that historically has really had the messaging down from any of the PR or IR, whoever it is like no messaging. He, Mike Seaver, the CEO jumps on CBC. The CBC host literally says literally that, um, Oh, Mike, you know, you wanted to jump off at the, this is a special treat. You wanted to jump off at the end, onto the end of the show because were you jealous that we had Verizon CEO there? So clearly T-Mobile was like scrambling to get the CEO uh, Mike Sievert on CNBC, and then this is what he said. Hit play. CNET has a good piece, Mike, on the price differential. It looks like if you if you go via Apple's website to try to buy the phone, it's different prices based on which carrier you have. And, and T-Mobile, it looks like, is the most expensive when it comes to the listing. Uh, it looks like yeah, $829 you- for T-Mobile and Sprint versus $799 for AT&T and Verizon. What's that about? Well, a couple of things. First of all, they don't have our promotions loaded yet. Uh, when you go to the T-Mobile site, you'll see that we have by far the best deal in the market. Do you know you can get two lines with T-Mobile 
for $100 a month with your iPhone 12 included. By the way, the other guys charge $120 a month just for the rate plan before you ever start talking about paying $799 or $829 for the phone. So you got to look at the big picture. And of course, you have to understand the launch you, you promotions. Can, you can end it here. First can of I all, ask why, a question? Why weren't the promotions loaded? That's what I was going to ask. Is that just management incompetence? I, there's no answer for this. Again, I mean, it's, the it's the there's biggest the zero day. messaging coming out well, of the company. Biggest and, and, day in the year. Well, wait, hold on. But, but hold hey, on. By the way, he said that it, the, the, the offers are on their website. No, it wasn't. It do you, wasn't do on you the think website. that this? But do you think this was AT and T and Verizon had bigger offers than T-Mobile was expecting, and that they just weren't prepared for this? Or do you think there actually were promos that they just hadn't? The, the promos. First of all, there were no promos from T-Mobile. So like, it's not like you decide last minute and tell Apple, like, here's what you're going to put in your website. Right. Like, no, there was no promos. I have no idea what happened. <laughs> and there's no, I've heard plenty of tinfoil hat theories <laughs> from investors this week. No matter how you look at it, it just was not a good look for T-Mobile. And even today. The iPhone launch only happens once a year. So it's like you sort of get prepared for this well in advance. Not prepared. It's the and, biggest day for all carriers of the entire year. Most important day, probably. And by the way, if that was your decision to do whatever you were going to do, how are you not prepared with the seven messaging points for investors when they dial into you or when you're going on CNBC? I mean- it was crazy. And even today, it launched so that now the, the promo theoretically is on Apple's website. You're getting a different subsidy on Apple's website than you are on T-Mobile store. I mean, I, I don't understand what's happening at the company. It's very unlike how T-Mobile has, uh, has had a marketing strategy in the past. But let's leave it at that and move on. Okay. So um, the big news in media this week was, and we've got a tweet up here from CNBC, Disney says its primary focus for entertainment is streaming as it announces a major reorg. And I think Disney did an incredible job of sort of telling investors that this was a dramatic change in the company's strategy. And essentially what they did is they made the heads of content for film, the heads of content for TV, and the heads of content for sports basically gave them complete oversight over content creation, whether it was going to legacy outlets like theaters and cable networks or into their streaming outlets. And so before at Disney, there were streaming outlets that actually had their own content divisions. And now all of those content decisions are being centralized uh, among sort of these content teams. And they're creating a separate distribution team and putting an executive that's been a longtime Chapik disciple, this guy, Kareem Daniel, we've actually never heard of him. Most people I've talked to have actually never heard of him, but he's in charge of all of the distribution side of the company. I think one of the things, though, that we sort of missed, and, and we went on CNBC and we talked about this initially, is that we thought that the way this was being structured is that essentially content makes content and then distribution basically tells you where that content goes. And that would have been Rich, very exciting. But the, the reason that we thought that is because when Chapik went on CNBC, that's how he presented it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he didn't use those exact words, but he certainly gave that impression, Brandon. And I think strongly. Sort of and by the that. way, there are competitors of ours right now who are still going out with that story and presenting it that way after talking to Disney IR. And it's so, just from everything we understand internally, what's actually happening is the content teams, meaning whether it's Alan Horn in film or whether it's Peter Rice in TV or Jimmy Pitaro in sports, they basically get to figure out where they want the content to go. The distribution team basically tells them this is what we think it can generate. This is essentially uh, how much P&L we have because the P&Ls are now separated from the content. So it's like it's a very odd structure and something that is just very hard to comprehend how you run a streaming business and plan for building content when somebody else controls the P&L. So I don't really know how this is going to work in practice, but the, the main thing this did was not, I don't think this really leans Disney's quote unquote more into streaming. I think what this actually does is make sure that there's not two warring content divisions and no longer can Rebecca Campbell and her team inside of Disney plus she can't tell the film division or the TV division, please make this piece of content for us. It's now the film and TV's division to make those. And so that's a very big difference. And we wrote a big piece on it this week. And I just sense that there's a lot of confusion out there. And, you know, at the end of the day, Disney, don't, don't 
don't focus on what Disney says, focus on what they actually did. And when you think about that, Disney delayed virtually every one of their movies until the middle to end of next year. If, if they were all of a sudden making some dramatic shift to streaming, they would have not delayed those movies. They would have put those movies directly onto their streaming services. And so I think that's a very important point that's gotten lost is that they just delayed their entire slate other than soul till the middle of next year. So uh, lots of, Rich, lots of noise. I don't another, think this is nearly as exciting as people think it is. Another thing I noticed, if you read that press release, if you read through it um, and they talk about everyone's roles, one person is noticeably absent from it. Well, it, all it says on that one person is that he'll continue in his role as like head of content or creative, whatever, in terms of Iger. But it certainly doesn't like there's no quote from Iger. There's no like this is the dream scenario for this company. I mean, it's sort of weird, like how little attention it pays to Iger. And you sort of get the feeling that, you know, Bob is going to fade out because this is really now the Chapik show. So there's still a year plus left on Iger's contract to stay on as chairman. But. I don't know, Brandon. It, it sort of doesn't feel like he's going to be there for that full year. Not the way that press release read. So we'll see. But I wouldn't be surprised if we get a little kind of departure notices sometime over the next few, you know, before year end wouldn't shock me, especially with pandemic isn't going away. Parks are still really tr- struggling. This is not the I mean, if you're if you're a media executive, this is not fun. I mean, I don't think anyone is having fun in this environment right now. You can't make stuff as easily. You can't release stuff. This is, t- this is just hard, really hard everywhere you look. Let's, um, let's shift gears um, to talk about Netflix. There, not only did we see a screening of Over the Moon last weekend, um, which good, solid movie. I don't think it, it doesn't have like the scale of Frozen, uh, but it certainly shows you where Netflix is going in terms of animation. A bit too sad, in my opinion, but a very well done movie. It's just a little sad. I mean, Aww. it doesn't have sort of the optimism of a lot of so sensitive, Rich. It was sad. It was very sad. Um, but you look, the one thing that you take away from it is Netflix's ambitions in, in film or sorry, in animation are to have six animated feature films a year. There's probably only six animated feature films right now from the entire legacy industry. And so this is a pretty bold ambition. It'll take them several years to get there. But Ted Sarandos, the chief uh, co-CEO now, uh, putting that out there last weekend, I thought was fascinating in terms of how they really are gunning for Disney uh, on the animation side. And the other thing we have on this slide is um, that Netflix has finally, and we've been talking about them ending 30-day trials all over the world in prior podcasts, we've highlighted this. Now they're actually ending their 30-day trial in the U.S. And so when you go to their website, it's basically which plan do you want to sign up for would seem to be, Brandon, I think, a pretty bullish sign. I mean, if you don't need to yeah, offer I, people trials. Rich, I think, they've, I think they've probably touched mostly everyone that they're going to touch in the U.S. And at this point, ha- having the 30-day offer is just dilutive. I, right. I, I really, it's not helping I really you bring on that, new subs. I don't think so. It's encouraging people to cheat is what I, is what I really think it, it comes down to at this point. Like trying a different credit card or whatnot, setting up a yeah. separate email, they, whatever it may be. At this point, they've touched mostly everyone who's going to get, who probably has a broadband type and look, or at least a connected TV. And if you represent 26% of streaming market share and basically you're the only service with content over the course of the next six months, it's sort of hard to imagine how, you know, if you're sitting there at, at Netflix, why you really need to convince people to come on board anymore. I mean, the content speaks for itself and the pace of content speaks for itself. So was it sad because it was like a typical Disney animated movie where they killed off one of the parents in the first 10 minutes? <laughs> It's, it's, you know, it's funny how it goes back to Bambi. No, no, no. It goes back to Bambi. Every single great Disney movie, if you think about it, other than The Incredibles, and I don't know why it doesn't fit in that mold, the mother always dies. It's either she's dead or she dies. And of course, in the first five minutes, the mother dies. I mean, it's, it'll be obvious. Oh, spoiler alert. Yes. No, no, no. It's not even a spoiler. Like, it's so obvious. Rachel sees the movie. It starts, it's literally the the movie starts, and within 30 seconds, she's like, the mom's going to die. Like, it was so obvious. Why is that the model for children's animated movies? I don't understand. (laughs) No. It's horrible. 
I mean, Bambi, the mother dies in the fight. I mean, it's just like it, oh, the mother always dies. It's really depressing when you All think right, about it. On. I think a more inter- one interesting thing on, on that film that I wanted to ask you about, Rich, is it's steeped in Chinese culture, right? Do you think that that was a strategic move to get some Netflix distribution into China? Um, but do you think it's coincidence? No, well, Netflix actually doesn't control the distribution in China. So actually the Pearl Street Studios that made it controls China itself. But look, I do think that the global ca- I mean, it's basically a, an all Chinese cast. Yep. I think the story, you know, is sort of it, it works very well for a U.S. viewer. I think it sort of speaks to the fact that the big push at Netflix, it's no longer about U.S. content for U.S. audiences. Yes, movies, I, that, I, it's not fair. Movies, it certainly is. But it really is about creating global content. And I think this is a great example of an animated movie that really feels global in its creation. Um, you know, it's uniquely you know, it's really is Chinese in its content, but yet works and can play globally. And I think you're going to see a lot more of that. You know, I think Netflix has 20 movies coming out in the month of October. Only three or four of them are U.S. English language pictures. I mean, they have movies from Poland and movies from India. I mean, it's sort of, you know, I think there's a Korean movie, the first Korean original movie. So this is really about globalizing the content creation and also leveraging global content creation resources. A lot of the U.S. media companies are struggling to create in the U.S., Netflix is taking advantage of global capabilities to create content. Um, let's I, move I, on, on to the next topic, which is TikTok. And I don't know, do we have to just bow down to Walter? I mean, I feel like, I mean, Walt has sort of owned the topic of TikTok not going away. I'm going to read this because I think he found this and I really should read it. So this is Neelay Patel goes, thinking about last month when Trump declared TikTok a national security threat and said he'd ban it, demanded a ransom over a billion dollars of ransom from whoever bought it, brokered a cloud services deal to benefit a donor of his, meaning Oracle. And then everything came to nothing and TikTok is still just going the same as ever. I guess what happened? You're right. I think you're right. Still working. No buyer. And there was, yeah, whatever. I mean, I don't even know more. what to say about this. Like, is, is TikTok just good to go it, now forever? Like, I think no he's deal? just preoccupied, Rich, tweeting out his... You know, fake news. The onion articles. <laughs> I don't. Well. Because I've said on the last podcast, there's things that you can are are good um, for the base to talk about, um, but actually, it delivering anything on deliverables is another thing. And there's one of those that happened, I think, again this week when you know after um, Twitter was was um, censoring the New York Post article uh, and Facebook, I think, was doing the same, and they obviously reversed that. That all of a sudden, um, FCC Chairman Ajit Pai decides that, like, oh, now he in. I intend quote. This is from the tweet that's up for the podcast listeners from from uh, Chairman Pai. I intend to move forward with an FCC rulemaking to clarify the meeting of Section Two Thirty. Well, Rich, I also intend to clean my basement this weekend. I intend a lot of things, um, but as we talked about in terms of TikTok. I will say that I do not believe that this will come to vote at the November meeting, at the December meeting, at the January meeting, and then we'll see who's in charge uh, after that, whether it's Pi, but uh, the crazy Carl, thing, Walter, someone else. But, but, but the crazy thing is the idea that because Twitter took down this article on, I mean, hacked emails, not even clear whether these are actual real emails, uh, but and, and obviously right in the middle of an election cycle. And so I think both companies are trying to, you know, do their best of not facilitating, quote unquote, fake news. At the exact time that's happening, we've got Fox News out on TV with Tucker Carlson literally saying masks don't matter. Chris Christie's saying, please wear a mask. I don't want to end up. Don't you don't want to end up in an ICU. But you've got Tucker Carlson on Fox News saying whatever crazy stuff he wants. And my point of this is like you're going to try to regulate free speech on Facebook and what they do. And then you're not going to regulate, you know, broadcast television or cable network television. It's sort of just bizarre to me. Well, they're how not we're picking and choose regulate it. They're basically just not going to protect it under how it was under the two, th- under the two thirty. But I understand yeah. the, the parallels that you're making. The point is that this will trigger a lot of people as a lot of things that get put out there do just like the TikTok thing. 
but you got to look through the triggering things, prevent yourself from get triggered and then just say like, is this really ever going to become a rulemaking? Will it actually ever come to a vote? Is it going to be O'Reilly voting for it? Will O'Reilly be around? Is the next guy that got nominated actually going to be confirmed? And we should just step in. O'Reilly has basically said publicly, I think on Twitter, that he's a free speech First Amendment advocate and that this would this is a very hard thing i don't think you can count on his vote one way or another um so i don't want to like say that o'reilly has said he would vote for it or against it but again that's that's a question but um (laughs) and and do you put anything to to a vote that you don't have the votes for is another question and then if it's the next guy how's the next guy going to get singleton um how's he going to get confirmed within i mean so Okay, great. You put out a press release. I intend to do something. It, you know, everyone gets all excited about it. But like, is it actually going to get to a vote? And look, there's lawyers tweeting at me saying, "Oh yeah, it's going to happen in November, December." I'm taking the over. Let's we'll check back in in future podcasts and see. Where I'm this I'm, goes. I'm voting with I'm voting with Walt on this one. This okay. never sees the light of day. Okay, let's move on. We'll uh, talk about ratings, it in episode Brandon. 35. Sports exactly. ratings, Brandon. Why are sports ratings cratering? I mean, All this right. is crazy. Let's read, the, let's read the tweet, Rich. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, to start, okay? NBA playoff viewership declines 37% from last year wow. compared to a 38% decline oh. for the Stanley Cup playoffs and a 40% decline for the MLB Division Series. Then for the finals... The NBA Finals viewership was down 49% from last year and 61% for the Stanley Cup Finals. Look, we uh, I've spent a, a lot of time this week thinking about these sports ratings and trying to attribute what the reasons are. And clearly there's a confluence of events taking place, right? You have political, it's an election year. We've seen how that's affected the NFL in the past. You have a little... Now, hold on, ex- l- hold on. Let me just stop you there because it's important. NFL rating seasons date only down 10%. They're da- yeah, right, they're, da- they're so down. They're down, it, yes. but nothing They're down extreme. 10. I think last election cycle, they were down like 14, okay? So, the NFL. Yes, no. during the pre-election piece, right? So now you're taking a look at the NBA and the NHL and MLB and these crazy bad ratings right and like honestly, look out below ratings right and there's there's so many reasons people give they give the the political okay we just talked about the the effect on um on the nfl they talk about extra competition mark and i sat down and ripped the ratings apart to look at what the ratings difference is when these series were up against nfl games and not it was like 700 basis points so so not yeah, but, that much but, but i want to push back on that draw but, something that i said last week because last week brandon I, I suggested or pushed on you that i thought um social justice issues were an issue but like if you look okay at, but i i'll give you social justice because no, we looked, we thought about that too the yep. nhl ratings where social justice isn't yes. a big issue are down more than the nba ratings right. that's why so i want like, to withdraw what i said yeah. from last week because i looked at the numbers that were just in that tweet yeah. And obviously, there's no differential. If anything, hockey was worse, and they didn't have players, you know, with well, they didn't have the same um, in-your-face social justice messages that the NBA did. So clearly, that was that's not the primary driver. And, and, then, look, and then look on the way to hold on. But on the other side of this, or any, driver. you have no competition for content. I mean. There's almost nothing on linear television. So normally there would be this is well, there, there's, there is there is one thing, right, which is more political. Political ratings are up huge. But you're sure. talking about a couple of million extra viewers in totality when you when you look at uh, cable cable news. And by the way, if you want to say it's a trend that everyone's preoccupied with other things, look at Twitch viewership. Look at vi- like sure. look at video we talked game about YouTube. Consumption. We talked about YouTube look last week. Net- look at Netflix consumption, right. so on and so forth. Right? I, we always talk about the the sort of pull forward from COVID and the positive trends from it. Right? E-commerce, video games, whatever it is. But what about the negative trends? Is this sort of a pull forward of sports? especially these three leagues and second and what I'll call secondary because everyone's secondary to the NFL becoming 
just less popular and less relevant. All I know is every teenager I know every evening right now, all they're doing is sitting at home playing Among Us, like yeah, literally right. <laughs> playing Among Us. None of those teenagers were watching any of these sporting leagues last okay, year. But you know, you know what, Walt? That is actually a problem. No, I hear you, but that's not the reason ratings are down. No, it's it's not. I I think honestly, even the older sets are becoming less are becoming less interested, and they're fine. They started doing other things in the time when there wasn't sports, and they might just like doing those things better than watching sports. And sports may have lost some momentum. And there's (laughs) which is. Which is sort of crazy when you think about the fact that rights fees keep going up for these sporting well, events. Dude, think think about this. You have a lot of rights holders holding the bag now. One that I was thinking a lot about this week was the Olympics for next year because that's a massive bet for NBC. Right? What if? Yeah. What if? I mean, what Olympics if Olympic- is still different. I mean, it's only two weeks. I mean, look, you're right. It, it could totally be a mess, but it, it is one of those things where it doesn't happen very often. Who knows? I, I, I see your point, though. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of exposure there. If ratings are down sharply, that's a problem. The other fascinating thing is like some of these games were moved earlier in the day. And one of my big complaints was a lot of these sports were on too late. And that's why they were losing some of the youth. But even moving them earlier in the day didn't help ratings. Well, Walt, the ones it, it turns out that the ones everyone said, oh, the reason early rounds of the NBA and NHL were down, whatever it was, 20s and 30s, was because they, they had games on during the day. Uh-huh. Then you look at the finals when everything was on on broadcast and in prime time and they served even worse. And that includes if you core out the NFL games. But I, you know, the the only other conclusion I think about that maybe plays into this a little bit is there's so much more on streaming and there's so little fresh content on regular television, you know, entertainment content. Are people just turning their TVs on less onto the, you know, the non-streaming part of their TVs? And if you just if you don't have your TV on, you can't flip over and Correct. sort of randomly find about the game. Week, being stuck in the app. You're in once you're yeah. in, once you're in the app, like that, that's flipping over cer- is a lot harder. Certainly a pull forward uh, yep, of, totally. of trends. And so you have the rights holders, and then what are the leagues gonna do? I think the leagues need to figure out mm-hmm. how they're gonna reach these audiences that are now on other platforms and doing other things. Well, maybe this is part of the answer on the next slide, Brandon. Why don't you walk through both I, of these? Because I think they're yeah. both pretty interesting to this topic. So, yeah, they, they both, well, I'll just read the two. There were two, uh, and say there were two Amazon sports rights deals um, this uh, this week. The first one here from Joe Flint, Amazon deepens relationship with the NFL by landing its first ever postseason game. So they're going to do simulcast of the CBS wildcard game. As you know, there were extra wildcard games added this year with the expansion of the playoffs. And the second. Right. Small event. Yeah. Look, it's still playoffs, right? It's not exclusive. It's simulcast. But they're it's, not producing it's, the game. it's something they're yep. right. They're dipping their toe a little further in the water. And I think the NFL, as you have rights deals up there, which is the rights that everyone's focused on, um, probably wants to see how that performs. And then the second one here is Amazon pays 240 million euro for key. Champions League rights package in Italy. So that I, is a 30, uh, sorry, a three-year deal, um, 80 million euro a year. And I think it's like 17 games. Um, sure, that a, sort a of feels like a bigger deal. Yeah, that, that feels like a little bit uh, of a bigger deal. Um, but uh, look, we don't n- know what the streaming platforms as a whole want to do with sports rights. There's been no evidence really beyond Amazon that anyone is willing to, you know, move headlong into sports rights. Even Amazon is doing it slowly and methodically as they do things. And 
who knows whether or not they're going to be there or others are going to be there when the NBA deal comes up again. When I will say though, the but I'll NHL stop deal, which is going to get done but, uh, fairly soon. But I'll tell you, if, if, if Amazon doesn't step up, and I think there's all signs that they're going oh, to step up on something big, but if they don't step up, there's no way, forget about what's going to happen in the next 12 months, whether it's the NHL deal or the new NFL deals, forget about the current packages. When these current packages that are being bid on now come up in four or five years, it's over because there's no are way. Talk, are you talking about the NFL? All of them. I mean, NBA in 2025, the next NHL contract, not this NFL, but the next one. Like it is fully over given where the trends are heading right now. They're going to you think about how much you I mean, you're literally going to destroy the cow by, you know, pulling this much milk out now for these leagues. And I think that's the real risk right now. Is that they don't have new bidders coming in. Hopefully that's Amazon. And I think there's a lot of signs that Amazon's gearing up and looking to get yep. more aggressive. And, and maybe if Amazon makes a big bid for one of these, it forces the others to finally get serious. But so far, as you said, Brendan, the only one that's out there that's doing anything of interest is Amazon. Yeah, and as ratings are not good, and if sports does become less relevant, Malone always says, we always quote it, sports are the glue that hold the bundle together. So if you have accelerate sub-declines, sports becomes less relevant, especially to the common or casual sports fan. You just have a massive undoing of that ecosystem and everyone's going to suffer. I'd love to see Amazon come in and buy exclusive not, rights. Not to, football. not to put it like, uh, not to be hyperbolic about it, but even if just Amazon comes in, what happens in five years? Who are the bidders? It's, it's Amazon and Disney. That's it. Are they? Just- well, look, we talked about it last week. I mean, Walt's now in love with Ted Lasso. I think everyone we talk to sort of loves that show. You know, Apple's ramped up their content production dramatically in just the span of, I don't know, the last nine months. I mean, it's gone from there's a few series to like there's a ton of totally, stuff in production. Totally. But so Rich, when I think about that. What if you know, we, we've had conversations with Eddie Q in the past and perhaps he's changed his tune. But he, he's said the problem with sports rights is that they don't hold value beyond the initial broadcast. And he, look, he wants look, to I, build library. I look, I think Reed Hastings. I mean, Reed's talked very publicly, just like Eddie, about I don't want to be in the sports rights business. But like, look, if Netflix got in, in 2025, we wrote a 2026, we wrote the other day that Netflix is, could have 425 million subscribers and have ARPU that's 15 plus dollars. What would they do with the cash at that point, Brandon? I mean, like, what's the next thing? What's the next use of cash at the end of the decade? I mean, I'm not saying they're going to do sports. But it's investing in sports. So sports rights, to me, have always been an arbitrage for for the leagues, right? They've the companies have always, you know, pound for pound lost money on them. But because in, they were in a world of it helped a larger ecosystem, it, it helped the larger ecosystem. And so it and so it worked. It, it does. Is Netflix going to do that math? Like if you're going to pay these prices for sports rights, how much do you have to raise the price on Netflix service to make it accretive? Does it even make sense to do that? And I don't think Reed necessarily wants to go there. I mean, he says he doesn't. How many people are watching Carol Baskin right now? <laughs> That's hilarious. That was a what Netflix does that really, awful, really well. Or that is, awful is, movie is, that had the blind. But that's just how is that that different than sports? Sports define services. I mean, sports built the Fox Network. Sports built ESPN. Also, you, but I'm, ESPN. you're talking about the longevity of a product. But and you can Walt, have a, you can have how a, much did Tiger King cost, and how you. much are sports rights? It, it's I mean, you're talking about just like these Sunday packages. Like for one of them is two billion dollars right. versus how much did it cost for Tiger King? You, your Look, hit rate on getting um, the NFL on your product versus the minimal amount that you're spending for Tiger King or whatever it is, is also extremely sure. higher. 
That's fair. Netflix just got rid of the head of original programming, right? And pushed out Cindy Holland. And I presume it's because the hit ratio wasn't good enough, right? I mean, that's the bottom line. And so to Walt's point, like this is guaranteed great content that does viewership unlike anything else. And I'm not saying it's going to happen in the next five years, but I'm thinking towards the end of the decade. And look, I don't think Apple, to your point, I don't think Apple or Netflix have any interest in sports rights right now. I just wonder in... as they get bigger and bigger and they become more dominant and the whole TV ecosystem dies as we currently know it. And by the way, why couldn't that change? By the way, sports rights would theoretically become less, become less expensive with less bidders and there's, and there's a reset. Yep. That's all. I'm just saying it's possible. I wouldn't rule anything out. By the way, I'm going to, I'm going to throw one more thing into this whole sports situation that I've been thinking about. What about what about sports betting? Wasn't sports betting supposed to be, you know, the savior for more for more and engagement yeah. and ratings? I know, like year over year, the amount of states that have legalized sports betting aren't great. And then I'll take the flip side of it on sports betting: if these sports do weaken, that theoretically weakens the TAM for sports betting. The, the part of the problem that people to crazy don't, conclusions, yeah, but, but, but look, there's a lot of implications the, here. But remember, people have been betting. I mean, Walt's been betting on. Hey, on, hey sorry. no, I'm sorry. Walt's never bad. Walt has never bad. Walt has never bad. I'm sorry. Time oh to time, just to see what, when, con- what the market thinks about the competition. States with legal right, yes. sports. Only when Walt is in New Jersey does he place bets. But my point is is that <laughs> betting's been going on in this country for a very long time. And the idea that all of a sudden because it's legalized that there's this massive explosion of the market and it'll be captured by companies like DraftKings and FanDuel, but I'm not convinced that there's all of a sudden a huge surge in viewership because of sports betting. Yeah, I think I, people have been I betting for years and years. <laughs> Maybe but this will bring it like sort of out of you know the shadows where walt resides into it doesn't really uh, feel like shadows based on everyone i know it's not in the shadows i know um and maybe one savior is in-game betting right whereas in-game betting gets better really takes off that'll Mm. that'll keep uh, based on our lives i thought in-game betting was already a large percentage of some of the some of the apps that are out there obviously the apps are not as broadly it's it's gonna become much much bigger over time there's technical issues this was a let's go to gaming let's go to gaming on amazon brandon all right let's 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 do amazon so look uh well i should read the tweet wow with four w's amazon has canceled crucible the game it released in may and unreleased in june so look the tech the tech giants have been looking to have a stronger hand in video game distribution. We've talked about that every week, right? So Microsoft has launched xCloud, Google Stadia, and Amazon did did Luna. And we talk about how it, it ties neatly with YouTube and Twitch, so on and so forth, as Walt loves. So on and so forth. <laughs> and so on and so forth. But I think... Even with the cloud prowess that these companies have, and perhaps they are very strongly, each strongly advantaged in delivering cloud gaming versus pretty much anyone going to compete, they're going to compete with. Among them and with the outside world and other platforms, a key differentiator is ultimately going to be content. And the fact of the matter is that Google and Amazon are nowhere on content. Amazon's tried their hand at games in the past and they failed. We know we know that. We so so about is Disney. That. I mean, a lot of the media companies yeah, have too. That's right. It, and Google has no original content whatsoever, and they haven't even really tried yet. Although they're probably doing some things behind the scene. But the fact of the matter is, if they're going to be legitimate players in in cloud distribution of games, they're going to need content, which means that there's going to have to be big M and A. Gaming studios are much harder to build it than than 
it seems like it's 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 not the same situation as you have in Hollywood where you just say, okay, I want to be in the game and I'm going to go and write checks and bid for the best content that's out there. There's much more limited content, especially at the scale. It takes years to make quality video games and it, this this just doesn't happen over overnight. And I think this failure from Crucible uh, on Crucible is is a testament to that. Amazon has all the resources in the world. They've said they're going to leverage their cloud to make games that are different than what anyone could else could do because they could do more complex things, and it it hasn't worked. Speaking it, of uh, failures, though, or I don't know if it's a failure, but you tell me. But has Overwatch? Oh, worked? this is this is has not Overwatch a, worked. No, but has is, has Overwatch worked? Work for before what? we get to this slide. Just has over or like what do you think of Overwatch overall? Look, I think Overwatch clearly was the biggest new IP launch for Blizzard when it when it came out in many 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 years, right? Brand new brand new IP and it worked out of the gate. They sold a lot of units. Engagement was great for a year, year and a half, two years. Um, but it's disappeared People have disappeared from the game over the last, I would say, God, is it, it's almost two years now, actually. And investors have been waiting for new IP to reinvigorate the game. Um, and so maybe does this, how does this slide relate then? Well, look, the, the, uh, Overwatch 2 is going to be that new IP. Everyone knows it's coming. It was announced at BlizzCon a year ago, but no one has actually known when it's going to come out. And that's been like a big uh, controversy um, in the stock, even as the stock has taken off um, on what's happened at Activision with Call of Duty, Warzone, so on and so forth. There you go, Walt. Um, <laughs> And there's evidence here that the beta for Overwatch 2 is, is coming soon. It's been uncovered that there was, there's, there's code out there that indicates it's, it's going to happen quickly. And so I think... Does that mean before year we, end or we, we don't we, know? No, I don't think before year end the beta will start. But say it starts early next year, you're almost certainly getting an Overwatch 2 next year. We believe that Diablo 4 is coming probably in 2022. So this sets Activision's um, pipeline and fulfills in, investor wants for the next two years. Additionally, I think one thing that you're going to see that isn't really being talked about is we think Overwatch 1 is going to go free to play prior to the actual launch of Overwatch 2. Activision wants to lean further into free to play. It really worked with Warzone and this sort of bifurcation of PVP versus PVE. Um, in no in idea the, what those letters mean. Player versus player or player versus environment. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> um, Not is, to be confused with picture in picture. Right. Yeah. Go Bottom on. line is, we think they're going to launch um, free to play for for Overwatch. FTP? Per, per, for preceding OW? it. FTP for OW for OW. Yes. You're down with OPP. Yeah, you know me. <laughs> next, Rich. Okay. Uh, the next one is really, this is really for Walt because it's, I know Walt loves Succession. I know Brandon is now catching up on Succession. And I have about three succession, episodes left in the second season, so okay, don't give so, anything away. Okay, so if you love Succession, so there was an, a big feature in J of James Murdoch who left Fox and recently left the News Corp board. Um, left Fox after the transaction with Disney and recently left the News Corp board as well. And I'm just going to read in the profile, there was an interesting section that I don't think a lot of investors caught, but it says, as is the great game of Murdoch's succession truly over, Murdoch watchers across media say James is aligned with his sister Elizabeth and his half-sister Prudence, even as he is estranged from his father and brother. 
when Rupert, 89, finally leaves the stage and his elder children take over, that could make three votes in the family trust against one. Um, that's certainly interesting as you think about sort of the disagreements that um, James has had in terms of, you know, his view on the direction of Fox News and the direction of News Corp and why he left the News Corp board recently over issues tied to climate change and some of the Australian newspapers. And so, I don't know, it, it could just be succession while it's a, obviously a um, it, it is all fictional in concept. The, the concept of how maybe the last season of Succession sort of writes itself within uh, Fox and News Corp is certainly interesting and not lost on us. And that's kind of, this whole section of the article just has me thinking about sort of what could ultimately happen. And, you know, while Rupert and Lachlan are obviously running Fox today um, in a post-Rupert world, what would happen and how might Fox change or not change um, in terms of the direction of the company uh, is certainly worth investors thinking about rich the other day i was or thursday to, to be specific i was um walking my dog Bodie um out towards the end of the driveway and i, I saw a newspaper on my drive now i don't get any newspapers so i was very this surprised is a physical newspaper this is a physical newspaper a physical newspaper so apparently rupert sent me a um free copy of wednesday's newspaper <laughs> Wednesday's New York Post, that is, a copy that I don't subscribe for. That was the only day it came. So it had this stale news about Le'Veon that, I don't, you know, so it was a little odd. But thank you, Rupert, for sending Wednesday's New York Post to the end of my driveway and all of my neighbors. I'm sure that's going to change everything. Wait, all mind. of your neighbors? It was all of your neighbors, too? Yeah, it was everywhere. It wasn't just me. I, don't, I wasn't getting targeted. But, yeah, I'm sure putting that at the end of my driveway is going to change my mind about Le'Veon Bell. Why don't we talk about that 4G, 5G topic and what um, I think this has implications for some of the companies in our universe of cable, Walt. This looks like a textbook. What is this? Like, this like a physics like a, textbook. This is a physics thing. And uh, <laughs> who you see there are two senior executives of Cisco at a little followed cable conference, um, but obviously engaging with the cable industry about a number of things. And the statement that I circled here was all cable operators, this is a quote, all cable operators are or will become mobile operators. And then they go through how the infrastructure of cable can support a mobile network. And then they talked about millimeter wave versus midband and just talked about, and this is a, this is the thing that we've referenced before, the millions of, of small cells that would be required if you try to do something on millimeter wave and then talked about how cable can use CBRS spectrum and potentially even bid on C-band spectrum in the upcoming auction. And the key here, Walt, is that today all cable is, all they're doing is MVNOs with Verizon. There's nothing. They don't run a network themselves. They do nothing really other than just leverage somebody else's wireless infrastructure. This is the concept of them actually becoming true wireless operators themselves and being in direct competition with the major carriers. Correct. And, you know, up to this point, the cable operators have said, no, MVNO is good. We're using it for bundling. But sometimes you get insights into the cable operators through the eyes of their vendors. And Cisco obviously is a, you know, is a key vendor. Now, we'll see if and when this happens, but definitely some interesting presentations out of Cisco. What is this? Well, actually, that's a great segue. I don't even <laughs> think we intended this as a great segue, but... <laughs> So this DOD thing that we've talked about in past podcasts haven't died. And, and, it's, and again, it, it harkens back to this um, Defense Innovation Advisory Committee and the work that Google did in showing that, again, millimeter wave doesn't work, needs 13 million cell sites in order to deliver 5G when the rest of the world is using mid-band. So Rivada is one of these companies that have pushed for the government to build its own uh, mid-band spectrum on its own network and then wholesale to operators and then the government would have it. So this company, Rivada, uh, the quote or the tweet that's on our screen is, um, Keith Cowan, formerly of a Sprint, joins Rivada as its new chief development officer and congressional investigations in the company's focus areas. So it's not dying. They're hiring people. What's what's What really was startling to me is that Keith Cowan, I know well, because when he was at Sprint, he had a, a, a was, I think they say, of ignomous fame in terms of 
botching up the clear wire relationship, botching the light squared um, relationship, botching their, their ability to do Metro PCS, and ultimately left the company, as the journal describes it, for his very difficult negotiating style. For, so at a time when you need someone to come in and deal with a sensitive political situation, you have a guy that's known for his combative negotiating This is not style. the guy you would pick. This is not the human on all humans in this ad. Uh, you would not pick him. It's, it's mind-boggling. I couldn't I believe tell. it. You're, you're literally, I, I, when I saw people the can't tweet. see your face, but your face is amazing if I could see what you're looking like describing this. Bottom, okay, let's just put it this way. The 2.5 spectrum will ultimately differentiate T-Mobile. That 2.5 spectrum has stuck around for a long time. Sprint could have used Clearwire to differentiate themselves in the market and win. If Masa had come in, built out that network, they wouldn't. Have, they would probably have been the ones buying T-Mobile. So this was one of the principal people responsible for the botch job that was Clearwire at Sprint. Anyway, let's move on to the next <laughs> next topic. It's hilarious, well, though. The last topic is sort of just sort of victory lap, I guess. I mean, it's sad, but. Back in April, we basically said that movie theaters, at least Regal, um, which is owned You're by Cineworld. You're definitely not sad about this. I'm a little. Yeah, I, I don't like people losing their jobs. No, I don't want to. Look, I don't like people losing jobs. But I do like that when Adam Aaron uh, went on Kramer and was talking about how they were so well positioned and uh, Mookie from Cineworld, which owns Regal, they were sort of just so confident and cocky that everything would bounce back and we sort of had this strong belief that movies should not open before next summer and that theater chains, including Cineworld, Regal and AMC would all go bankrupt. And I think with AMC now preparing to file and I don't think Regal Cineworld will be far behind. The only one who may survive this is actually Cinemark because their balance sheet is just a bunch stronger. But this now seems unavoidable. These theaters are going to go bankrupt. There's no major movies coming out before next you know, really till next April, May. And I'm not even sure that that's actually going to happen. I think a lot probably depends on who's president and what the sort of direction of COVID sort of becomes over time. But the, the major takeaway, honestly, is just consumers aren't ready. People aren't ready to be in indoor in, in circumstances uh, to watch a movie, especially when there's so many easy ways to watch them at home. And this sort of goes back to what surprises us on, on Disney is, you know, when you look at, you know, Disney delaying essentially all of their movies other than Soul, they had a golden opportunity. The theaters are, you know, the theaters can't fight back. They're going bankrupt. Like, they're, they're out of it. So the fact that you didn't just take your entire slate and just start gunning it on Disney Plus and Hulu is really what shocks us about, uh, uh, about the Disney management team is that they have this golden opportunity. They have a platform or multiple platforms to utilize this content, and they just don't seem to want to do it. While Netflix, we talked about earlier in this podcast, they're just literally all out gunning it on the movie side, taking advantage of the fact that these studios have lots of movies and they're piling up like a kind of a, a snowy road pile up of cars. I'm going to miss the theaters. You're still going to go. There's just not going to be as many of them. You might have to drive a little further. They'll still be around. How about we end with, though, something fun for you, Walt? I know you love a good cheesesteak. Oh, well, we also always have to work in Portnoy in some way. And some shit. We should have worked in the gambling portion of that before. Anyway, Portnoy, you know, he's got the pen gaming thing, gambling in Philly. That's where the app is. Goes to Dallas Sandro Steaks, which is would have been one this of my- famous? This is, is all, this famous? This is, well- um, for me, it's famous because it was it was between where I lived and my high school. So this would be a stop on the way home um, from my high school to hit D'Alessandro Steaks. It's in Roxboro, um, so it's out of the city. Um, so yeah, it's it's one of the known places. Brandon, do you have a do you have, as a former Philly resident for a couple of years? Do you have a favorite cheesesteak location? Um, back when I was in school, I used to go multiple nights a week and have multiple one Pat's and one Gino steak. And, and I was still like 120 pounds. I don't know what happened to what me. About Billy I, 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 did, Billy Bob's? I hated Billy Bob's. Billy Bob's was terrible and people got shot there. Um, <laughs> um, I, Pat's was always my favorite. I did have a White House cheesesteak this week in addition to what uh, 
Oh, How was that? A larger White House sub, and it was actually pretty good. The bread is pretty good. We actually also did a pizza review. That, you know, at Smoky Joe's, they converted the bottom, I think, to a restaurant. Or actually, I think if you go into Smokes, there's pizza, and he, he did a pizza review. There was it didn't come out that good. I don't you think know, we're going to Smokes. Well, for, uh, didn't for pizza. You, didn't didn't you bounce at Smokes? I did actually. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> good times. Can, can you tell us a story about that? Definitely not. Okay. Good. <laughs> We got to launch. We, by the way, for our listeners, we we launched the third podcast um, yeah. yesterday. Why don't you tell us about the Lightshed Live podcast, Richard? So we basically took all of our Lightshed Live interviews, which have been which we based referred in to Zoom. a lot on this on this on Lightshed. On we this we podcast. do, and they've all been Zoom based. And a lot of our listeners have said, "Could you make it available via a podcast?" And so we finally have executed on that. And I think there's. I think we had 21 episodes of Light Shed Live, which we launched essentially with the pandemic. Uh, shortly after we launched this podcast, we launched Light Shed Live. And which are, why don't we tell everyone what Light Shed Live is for those? Basically, I'd say they're basically one hour interviews of, you know, whether it's big public company executives. Uh, we've had everyone from Jason Kylar to Daniel Eck to startups. I mean, we had Doing Things Media. We've had Steve Stout talking about music. We've had a really diverse array from earliest stage startups to very large public global media companies and tech companies. And so uh, we've had you know public policy debates on Section 230, which we talked about today. There's a great one. If you're trying to figure out Section 230, we have a great Light Shed Live to help you dig into that. And so that whole catalog is now available as a podcast and uh, just another way to kind of make more content accessible to you, our listeners and watchers. And podcast four will be Walt's Trials and Tribulations as a bouncer. Uh, <laughs> have a great weekend, everyone. That's episode 26. Bye.